Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. This week, we thought we'd look back a year on to what we're calling the Trustquake. If you remember, Neil, Liz Truss became Prime Minister on 6th of September 2022 in succession to that other fellow. And <laughs> actually, I think I blinked and missed it. <laughs> well, her mission was a big one. It was to reverse what she called Britain's managed decline. Well, I think she certainly <laughs> dealt with the managed bit. <laughs> <laughs> A few weeks later, her Chancellor revealed how this was to be achieved in a much-heralded mini-budget. The centrepiece was £45 billion worth of unfunded tax cuts, which would have represented the biggest tax cut in the UK since the 1972 Dash for Growth budget of Anthony Barber. <laughs> we remember yeah, him. I'm afraid he's we a do. A, he's yes. a bit of a frequent appearer on this podcast. Those of us with a long time in finance, I'm afraid, can remember the barbecue. <laughs> the consequences were Tremendous. pretty catastrophic, I would say. <laughs> well, this one didn't fare much better. Quarteng's also set an annual growth target with his fiscal statement of 2.5%. But unfortunately for trusts and Quarteng, they hadn't quite figured out how the markets would react and the pound promptly swooned. Government borrowing costs ballooned from 3.8%, this is a 30-year yield, to more than 5% by mid-October, when Trust sacked her Chancellor for doing what she'd asked him to do and followed him out of the door a few days later. We're very pleased to to have uh, an old friend of the show, Duncan Weldon, back on to discuss Trust and the causes and consequences of Trust. Welcome, Duncan. Hello, thank you for having me back. No, great pleasure. Let's try and sum up where we are a year on. Is it is it safe now to say that Britain has recovered financially and economically from the trust quake, or are we still picking through the ruins? I think to an extent we're still picking through the ruins, aren't we? So we saw that big rise in gilt yields, you know, after mm. the mini budget end of September into October last year. Yep. You know, we now know some of that was to do with liability driven investment and pension funds, but it was a big rise in gilt yields it you know, followed straight through to a big rise in mortgage costs. One thing British politicians don't like is spiking mortgage costs. We saw instantly sort of a collapse in the popularity of the government. And as you said, the Chancellor was sacked and Liz Truss herself was forced out very soon afterwards. But where are we a year on? Well, you know, mortgage rates are pretty much back where they were in September. We saw that big spike and uh, we had Jeremy Hunt doing his sort of reassuring, I'm not quasi Quateng routine. And I think right. I'm the not new, quasi. This is the new chancellor, yep. The priority was very much to say, look, I'm not like the last guy. I'm very sensible. I'm going to be very moderate. But, you know, a year on, you know, mortgage costs, um, guilt yields back roughly where they were. If you look at spreads, they fell, but they have climbed back considerably. So I think financially, we are more or less back where we started. And economically, you know, there's a big shadow cast over policymaking as, you know, the government are so nervous of being associated with anything that blew up so spectacularly a year ago. I think actually gilt yields are now higher than they were at the spike that immediately followed the uh, trust panic. Mortgage rates appear to have come down a bit, but I would say we're still pretty much in the mire and the sums 
given the uh, amount that the government needs to borrow and the stance of the government uh, of, the, of the Bank of England are going to make it extremely tough to fund the government's spending needs. Yeah, it's a mess. I mean, you know, you know, where we are at the moment, you know, debt to GDP is around 100%. You know, you go back, what, 15 years before the financial crisis, it was more like 40. And then Britain's had this series of economic shocks, uh, financial crisis, the Brexit vote, the pandemic, war in Ukraine, short-lived trust administrations, almost the same magnitude, um, you know, has left us with debt levels very high. The difference is that for most of the last 15 years, interest rates have been essentially nothing. Now interest rates have returned to a more normal level. Suddenly the burden of that high level of debt really starts to bite. You know, Debt interest costs as a percentage of government revenues have risen very strongly over the last couple of years. It looks like they're going to stay there. You know, We end up in this weird position that the tax burden in Britain is the highest it's been since the 1960s. But public services are falling over at the same time. So, you know, everyone is sort of paying more in tax, but not seeing much by way of return because a lot of it's going on sort of debt interest payments. That's the public side. What about the private side? To what extent do you think that Truss is calamitous? I mean, there's no other word mm-hmm. for it, really. Calamitous prime ministership has damaged the confidence of the private sector because there's quite a lot of talk that Britain is essentially finding it much harder to attract private foreign direct investment. Domestic firms are obviously anxious about all sorts of things to do with rising interest rates to make investments at the moment. But there's a sense that there's also a a sort of trust, (laughs) trust premium discount, whatever it is, which is putting people off. Do you think there's anything in that? Or do you think uh, that's overstated? I think there is something in it. You know, I think for international investors, you know, you, you know how international investors work. It's sort of like a spotlight which shines on different countries at different times. Mm. And, you know, the spotlight shone on Britain after the Brexit vote. You know, people mm. were suddenly aware of, you know, you've got to take political risk seriously in Britain, which is something people hadn't had to do for a long time. And then we yeah. had a few years of, you know, are we or are we not going to get a Jeremy Corbyn government? And that certainly grabbed international investors' attention. It looked like those sort of political risks associated with Britain that start to go away a bit, to fade, and then we had trust. Mm. Once again, you know, you had sort of political decisions and political risk driving big changes in UK asset prices, a perceived new risk in the UK. I think investors, you know, Britain was put back on their radar, having started to slip off it as a source of political risk a year ago. And I think that's still there. And there's this general sense, you know, when I talk to international investors that, you know, we've had however many prime ministers and chancellors it now is in a very short period of time, that it's very, very hard to see sort of long term certainty in terms of the policy framework, the tax framework for Britain. And that just makes Britain a less attractive place to invest. It makes it a much less attractive place to engage in foreign direct investment. Now, in recent weeks, Rishi Sunak has started to obviously think a little bit about some of these issues made a few announcements which have been quite criticised, some on house building, which we discussed in a previous podcast, designed to increase the rate of house building. And now an announcement about electric vehicles and the possibility that the government will push back the date on which it forces all new cars sold to be electric. How do you read that? Do you think that's a response to the post-trust malaise and he's sort of trying to get things moving? 
Well, I remember talking about Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss with you two on this show, uh, yeah. I think last summer during the leadership race, when yeah. you know the point I was making, which I think we all actually agreed on, was that actually, in many ways, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, are, their political instincts are in some ways quite similar. They both instinctively prefer lower taxes. They're both you know, quite small staters. They're both very much in that sort of 1980s reforming small state mold, very different to Boris Johnson. The difference was one of approach and emphasis in that Liz Truss was more of a sort of Ronald Reagan type character who thought the most important thing to do is just get these big tax cuts done and then we'll do all of the supply side reforms and sort of pro-growth policies after that. Whereas Rishi Sunak, fundamentally a fiscal conservative at heart, and yeah, would have taken a more sort of, you know, Margaret Thatcher type approach. If you do your your tough structural reforms first, and then if it's all working, at that point you think about reducing taxes. So I think, you know, the stuff from Rishi Sunak on nutrient neutrality, stuff on watering back some of the targets about getting to net zero, you know, I think that's the kind of thing he's always wanted to do. The problem is, all of this became associated with Liz Truss. And that, you know, the guiding thing that British governments have been trying to do for the last year is demonstrate they are not Liz Truss and the Chancellor is not quasi Quarteng. You know, the problem they've got is it's not working. We spoke about what happened in the, the gilt market, we spoke about what's happened with spreads, with mortgage. The really striking thing is when you look at the polling and which party is trusted to be the best to run the economy. Mm. You know, conservative polling on the economy took a massive hit last September and October, and it's really not improved since. I mean, to that extent, what happened under Liz Truss was a was a Black Wednesday moment. That it's this bolt from the blue. The public pay attention, say, you guys don't know what you're doing, and it's very, very hard to recover from that. How much do you think that the strategy of Sunak between now and the election might be I'm going to do what I think is the right thing rather than keeping an eye on the polls every 20 minutes to see whether my latest announcement has gone down well or badly. There's some evidence with, as we are saying, about the deadline for petrol cars and the chop back of HS2 that perhaps this is what he's decided to do. There is still, you know, if you read the papers, there is still a group of advisors around Rishi Sunak who think the next election can be more competitive, who think that, you know, there is a road to a conservative victory. And as long as they think that, they're not going to take their eyes off the polls entirely. There's always going to be at least one sort of half eye on is what we're doing popular. You know, when you think back to Liz Truss, you know, what was very interesting was, you know, she had all of these ideas about, you know, the big one was planning reform. It was liberalise the British planning system to make it easier to build homes, to make it easier to build infrastructure. And it is interesting that, you know, across most observers of British politics, most observers of the British economy, there is widespread agreement that doing that would be good. But it is politically very, very difficult because, you know, people don't want things built near their house and homeowners essentially have a veto under the current planning system. But Liz Truss seemed to go about this entirely the wrong way. Pushing this through Parliament was always going to be difficult. You know, it would have seemed made much more sense to me to start with the tricky stuff. We're going to do this planning reform and sort of hold out the carrot that look, if it's working, we can talk about big tax cuts. She instead started with, 
we're going to do these big tax cuts. Here's the stuff that, you know, lots of my backbenchers really want. And now I've given them that, maybe I'll go back to them in a few months and ask for the really tricky stuff. And it just, it didn't really make much sense to me. I think Rishi Sunak is at least getting the oldering right, not getting the um, cart before the horse. It's pretty hard because, I mean, we're going to try and delve into the kind of method in the madness in the trust administration. But it does seem to me that one of the persistent problems that a prime minister faces is that if they go to their MPs with a long list of uh, (laughs) growth promoting things like uh, house building targets in their rural seats, (laughs) big infrastructure projects that they're going to drive through local land, the basic problem they face is that the MPs go, well, what's in it for us? And saying to them, well, in a few years' time, when we've built all this, we've driven all this concrete through your constituency, we might give you a tax cut, seems to me to be, <laughs> has been demonstrated over many years to be an almost impossible sale. Yeah, I don't disagree. It's, you know, there is a reason that we found ourselves stuck in this mess, which we're in then. Planning reform is the obvious one. It's just very, very, very hard under the current system. Well, I don't think anybody would dispute that. I wonder why we have this. And I have a sort of nasty suspicion that as a nation, we are much more interested in defending what we've got rather than trying to make two stalks of wheat grow where one grew before. There doesn't seem any great enthusiasm in the country as a whole for getting richer, producing something which is worth more than it was. If I was a politician, I would find this the most disturbing thing of all, that people really think, yeah, well, it's all be okay, but you know, I'm not prepared to put myself out particularly for it. And this seems to be quite prevalent through the whole of the population, really. Well, you know, people talk, don't they, of, you know, a problem with small to medium-sized businesses and growth in Britain. They talk about, you know, lifestyle businesses problems when, you know, you've got a an owner who is in their late 50s, early 60s, who is earning enough from their business that they're very comfortable. And yes, there are things they could do which would increase their revenue, increase their profits, but it's a lot of work and they're quite happy with where they are and, you know, they're approaching retirement anyway, so maybe they don't bother. And you sometimes wonder if, you know, the British economy has this problem, but lit, but sort of writ large. I think it's not helped by, you know, a two-party essentially structure with first-past-the-post, which makes um, sort of assembling a pro-growth coalition quite difficult. You know, Liz Truss, I mean, I mean, at her conference speech, the one she got to give, you know, she spoke about Britain being held back by what she called An anti-growth coalition. The anti-growth coalition. Yeah, I think there was <laughs> there was some truth in this. Now, I, I, you know, would dispute how much of the anti-growth coalition is really Greenpeace, which she mentioned, and how much of it is just quite comfortable voters who own their own house who don't want anything built next to it. But she wasn't wrong that there is a powerful anti-growth body in British politics. Before we get completely mired in the slough of despond, <laughs> I just wanted to deal with a couple of things which which send a slightly different message about the British economy. I suppose one is the revisions to growth, which basically increased the size of the British economy and made it look less of a laggard than it had done compared to the G7 before. So that's one. And the second is the weird strength of sterling, which has been, for all the talk that we can't attract any investment or anything like that, 
the strength of the pound against the dollar and European currencies seems to be sending a different message. So I'm just intrigued by what you make of those two little snippets. Yeah, so let's start the revisions because I think they are interesting. And, you know, they, 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 they were big. It was nearly 2% of GDP that, you know, the Office of National Statistics fanned down the back of the sofa. Yeah. You know, they said, the, um, <laughs> they said you know, the, 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 yeah, the downturn in 2020 was less sharp than expected. There was more stock building. And in particular, they said the recovery in 2021 was quite a bit faster. You know, what it does in terms of G7 growth is it takes Britain from being firmly at the bottom of yeah. um, the G7 to yeah. going ahead of Italy to being you know, roughly similar to France. In a relegation battle. I yeah, think in a relegation battle. Yeah. <laughs> we, should, we should be careful, though, because the ONS are also very keen to point out you know, these updates follow what, what the statisticians call supply and use tables. It means rather than just using turnover numbers, mm. you've got access to inputs and outputs going into different sectors. You get a better sense of profit margins. That's yeah. what drove the revision. The ONS are the first major stats office to update the 2020 and 2021 numbers using these sort of tables. Yep. We should expect the other G7 countries to do their own revisions over the following the next four or five months. So it may be that lots of G7 growth is revised up as well, and we we fall back towards the bottom of the table. But it is good news. You know, the economy is bigger than before the pandemic. The sterling stuff is interesting, and I wonder how much of that though is just a, just a rate story and this you know, idea that you know that the Fed and the ECB were done, but the Bank of England probably had further to go and your straightforward rates differential story mm. but you know i mean it's helpful you know higher sterling does help in terms of bringing down import costs of dampening down import inflation i wanted to ask you in the light of truss's speech her recent speech do you think there is anything in what she was proposing that we should have kept. I mean, essentially, we chucked out everything that she proposed. What speech are we referring to? Just, just so the listener knows. Institute of Government, I think. Thank okay, yeah, yeah, where she reflected yes. on her uh, yeah. time in office. I, I'm not sure there was much reflection, but it was, it was a very, it was a very combative speech. <laughs> It was almost a minute by minute account in real time, which wouldn't take very long. I mean, um, it was pretty combative. Look, fundamentally, she was right that Britain has a growth problem. That you know, even after these revisions, which got talked up a lot to 2020 and 2021, you know, the last 20 odd years have not been great for the British economy. Productivity growth fell off a cliff after 2007. Has never really recovered. Britain went from having the second fastest productivity growth in the G7, behind only the United States, to the second slowest ahead of only Italy over a sort of 15-year period. What this has meant for most British people is we've had, you know, we're in this ridiculous situation where average earnings in real terms today are about where they were in 2008, you know, sort of 15 odd years of no real increase in median living standards is unheard of. And, you know, Liz Truss's argument that we should try and do something about this was fundamentally right. She was fundamentally right in many of the things she picked. I mean, you know, the planning system is broken. It gives too much power to homeowners to veto development, whether that's housing or infrastructure. She was right on that. She was right that, you know, sort of business as usual from the Treasury clearly hasn't worked. But her problem was, I think, you know, it goes back to the politics that, you know, she clearly took over a government behind in the polls, knowing she was, what, two and a half years out from a general election and decided just to try and 
do everything at once to sort of, you know, bet the house that you can turn something around, turn an economy around really quickly. You know, the result was just really spooked markets and a a worse situation than than she inherited. Do you think it's possible to cut public spending meaningfully in the sort of democracy that we have? I don't think it is really possible to cut public spending much. Okay, what can you cut? The easiest thing to cut, which Jeremy Hunt has done a bit of, is capital spending. You know, the problem is, you know, we're talking about boosting British growth. You know, in the medium term, you know, government capital spending is probably, you know, one of the bits of government spending which is most sort of positive for growth. But capital spending is quite easy to cut because, you know, cutting health spending means cutting numbers or pay of nurses, cutting education spending, you know, cutting number of teaching assistants or freezing teacher salaries, all of this. But, you know, cutting future road building doesn't have an interest group behind it. So that that's, tends to be where chancellors go. Well, it does get noticed when school roofs all start caving in. Yes, in the long run, in the long run, this stuff obviously all matters. But, you know, we're in a situation right now, you know, if you look at, you know, the health service, you know, waiting lists have risen from four and a half million to seven and a half million. It is extraordinary to think that that's one in 10 of the population. Yeah, so a huge rise. You know, public sector pay, they've tried to hold down at a time when private sector pay has been growing, you know, at a rampant rate. What, 7.8% is the average regular pay growth at the moment. They're trying to hold public sector pay down below two, 3%. So what you're getting is a recruitment and retention crisis across the public sector, which, you know, obviously affects service levels. So I think it's very, very hard to see, you know, particularly because we should bear in mind, you know, large bits of the public sector, local government, etc., you know, have seen big falls in their spending power over the last 10, 15 years. There is not much in the way of fat to cut. So yes, we can cut public spending, but I think that requires an honest conversation with the public that it will be accompanied by the government getting out of doing certain things. Okay, so that's spending. Let's go back to growth for a second and and Trust's diagnosis. If you were Rishi Sunak or his SPAD, what would you be whispering in his ear or thinking you should pick? Maybe from the Trust agenda, or maybe there are other things you can do to get the economy performing a little bit more than it has been. There is definitely something big to be done with planning reform mm. in Britain. In terms of her tax side, you know where I think she definitely had a point was and it's happened now, but the very steep increase we saw in corporation tax at a time that growth was weak, that investment was already weak, you know, that sort of large one-off step change in corporation tax, if you're going to cancel anything, was the obvious thing to, at the very least, postpone or dampen down. Mm. But, you know, the problem is, of course, it was Rishi Sunak as chancellor who penciled it in in the first place, so a very hard one for him to then (laughs) um, back away from. You know, I think things like the super deduction were a very good idea that could have been rolled forward. I think there's much more can be done with capital allowances for British firms to try and encourage more capital spending. The problem you have is lots of this stuff is very, very helpful, but none of it does much in the immediate short term. When you're this close to a general election, it's very hard to take your eyes you know, above that horizon of the next election. Politicians will always be looking for stuff they can do immediately. We will probably, you know, at the budget we get coming up, there'll be a lot of pressure on Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, to come out with some pre-election tax cuts. Yeah. But whether that will be enough to you know, move the dials on growth or public opinion, both seem very questionable to me. It's looking a bit gloomy. So, so I would I would say from absorbing what I've I've listened to so far, what you're really saying is 
Rishi should just prepare for opposition. There's not a lot he can do. Okay, to, to inject some optimism, to inject some optimism, to be absolutely clear, you know, the British economy is not in quite as deep a hole as we thought it was a month ago um, oh. before these revisions. We have at least you know, surpassed their pre-pandemic peak. Despite a slowing economy, despite the swiftest pace of interest rate rises in several decades, the, the jobs market continues to be relatively strong. We're not seeing a big rise in unemployment. We have so far avoided a recession, which I think at the start of the year almost everyone expected. So, you know, the glass is not empty. It's not quite half full, but it's um, it's not quite as gloomy as um, as it looked even sort of five or six months ago. Anyway, maybe he can get some good tips when Liz Truss's book comes out. We'll be buying a copy, <laughs> oh, won't yes. you, Neil? We'll probably have a lot of it. tips on how we should become more ambitious as a nation. Yeah. Ten years to save the West, I believe. I think her, with her timescales, more like 49 days to save the West. <laughs> that was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton. And our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.